0: Father, we thank you that you speak to us uh, right here, right now, through the words of Scripture. Help us to hear clearly your voice through your Spirit's work in our hearts. Amen. Surely one of the most common types of advertising must be the the before and after. I mean, just take a look at the bus next time you're on the high street. Uh, Before this diet, I weighed 20 stone. After it, I weighed 12. Before joining that gym, I was weak and puny, after I had a six-pack. Before using this moisturiser, I had terrible skin, after my face feels like a baby's bottom. Um, And we might not take those adverts too seriously, but I think they do tap into something. Um, Something about the way that we think about ourselves and our lives, uh, and the stories we tell, the way we talk about ourselves and our lives. I think most of us, um, I know I do, but probably have one or two sort of moments of transformation, let's call them, kind of before and after moments in our lives, uh, points at which everything changed, points at which our lives, we ourselves, were never the same again. Um, often quite obvious, external things, maybe moving to a new school, uh, finding a new friendship group. Going to university, getting married, having a first child, changing career, moving house, moving town, moving country. Um, And not always positive things. Uh, Maybe everything changed when you lost a loved one, when you separated from a partner, when you received a diagnosis or or had a mental health crisis or a burnout. I think often that they're a bit more internal, personal, ethereal almost, Everything changed when you, when you finally threw off your social awkwardness and came out of your shell, or when you learned to look at or, or think of yourself in a different way. I think most of us probably have one or two moments um, that we'd see as, as before and after moments, definitive, everything changed, never be the same again, moments in our lives. And however great however definitive, however life-changing those before and after moments have been, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, wants us to see an even greater, even more definitive, even more life-changing before and after transformation that has occurred in the life of each person who trusts Jesus. A transformation after which we have not been and never could be the same again. And it feels like a bit of a jump, maybe, as as we go from the great prayer that uh, that Dan's just recapped in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, into chapter 2, verse 1, this morning. But Paul seems, at first glance, to be kind of jumping from from one big topic to the next. I I think he's probably riffing on the theme of God's power. Um, In verse 19, he told these Ephesian Christians that God's incomparably great power is for us who believe. And I think what um, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 is doing is, is showing them. It's, it's proving it. It's a worked example of just how extraordinarily God's power has already been at work in these Christians. And we'll, uh, we'll consider the passage in three parts this morning. Uh, the before, the after, and then a so what now. Uh, so before, realise that you were dead without Jesus, from verses 1 to 3, uh, the after, Rejoice that you've been made alive with Jesus, verses 4 to 7. And then the so what now? Walk in the good works Jesus has planned for you, From verses 8 to 10. So first of all, verses 1 to 3, the before picture. Realize that you were dead without Jesus. Being human in a fallen world means that we will all have had some experience of death. For the youth in the room, perhaps you've had a pet die or a grandparent or a great-grandparent. Those of us who are older, probably known death a little closer to home, some of us very close to home. We've lost parents, spouses, friends, children. However intimately we have or, or haven't walked with death, there is one thing we all know about it, so we're from medical dramas, if nothing else. And that's that there's no coming back from it. Once the doctor has declared the time of death, that's it. The rush, the panic, the emergency, the blue lights. It all stops. Nothing more can be done. The best surgeon, the smartest doctor, the best rated hospital. Well, they all become redundant. Once death has done its work, that's it. It's over. And so, isn't it shocking that this is the image that Paul uses to describe us in verse 1? As for you, you were dead. Feel the force of that statement. As for you, you were dead. Not physically dead, their hearts hadn't stopped beating. Rather, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. They were, in fact, something worse than physically dead. They were spiritually dead. Their souls, their inner beings, their eternal selves were beyond all hope. Not unwell, not diseased, not not tainted, not, not in a good way, but dead, beyond all help. Beyond all hope. It's a grim picture that Paul gives us. What does a dead soul look like? I think two things to draw out in these verses. It looks like an enslaved soul. A soul with no freedom, no ability to look or to live outside the constraints of its masters. A soul that's enslaved to the ways of this world. In verse 2. To the ruler of the kingdom of the air that's the devil, also verse 2, and enslaved to the cravings and desires and thoughts of its flesh, in verse 3. A dead soul is one that's a slave to the world, to the devil, and to the flesh. And the dead soul is also a condemned soul, a soul that does not have any hope of coming into the presence of a holy God a soul that will be burnt up in a moment in the holy fire of our all-consuming God. It's a soul that, at the end of verse 3, is by nature deserving of wrath. What a verdict. And of course, this is not just a verdict. Upon them there, those wicked Ephesians, they had no idea how sinful they were. But did you notice the shift that Paul makes that from you, in verse 1, that you were dead, you followed the ways of this world, to verse 3, all of us also lived among them. We were by nature deserving of wrath. This was me too, says Paul. But not, not me too, I'm also a victim. Me too, I'm also a perpetrator. I'm also guilty. This was all of us, says Paul. We too were dead, dead in our sins, before we knew Jesus, before all hope, beyond all hope and beyond all help. And we still are, the Bible says, if we're not yet trusting Jesus. But how could that be the case? we might think, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like an accurate diagnosis. As we think of ourselves, our family members, our children, the people in our school, our workplace, on our street. They don't seem so bad. They're by and large nice people, they're decent. And we weren't so bad, were we? We're not so bad now, are we? There's a hundred people my teacher might describe with these verses before they'd say it about me. We're like the 40-something, in the room with the doctor, being told the results of the tests. Cancer? No, I don't think so. I don't have cancer. I can't have cancer. Maybe in 30 years' time. Treatable? It's too late. It can't be. I'm fine. Look at me. I'm fit. I'm healthy. I ran 5K this morning. Sorry, doctor. You've got this one wrong. As if refusing to accept the diagnosis will somehow change the outcome. And then a few months, maybe a few weeks down the line, it all becomes clear. And it's tempting to do the same with God's spiritual diagnosis, his statement here on the condition of our souls without Jesus. I don't look that sinful. I certainly don't feel that sinful. You're trying to say... That the bloody murder of Jesus by the Romans was somehow necessary for me? No, no, that was just barbarity. I'm not that bad. God's heart monitor it must be out of order. We, we hear God's diagnosis and we reel. We want to rebel, it makes us uncomfortable. We struggle to think of ourselves as as bad as the Bible says that we are without Jesus. And not just those of us hearing the verdict for the first time. God's diagnosis doesn't seem to describe what what we were like, what we are like, what those around us are like. It's not me, God. You've got the wrong person, wrong diagnosis. My problems are much less serious than this. And so some of us, we just deny it. Not true. Others of us, we ignore it. We park it away somewhere. But perhaps many of us, if we're already Christians, we assent to it. We, we just kind of push it to the back of our minds and don't really think about it. But refusing to accept the diagnosis won't change the outcome. And playing it down and pretending it's not really a thing means we fail to enjoy the incredible grace that is available for us. Because this passage doesn't end at verse 3 if we're ready to accept God's diagnosis in those three verses, that we were dead without Jesus, then we're ready to move on to verse four. Um, Our second point, the after picture. Rejoice that you have been made alive with Jesus. Rejoice that you have been made alive with Jesus. After the um, grim diagnosis of verses one to three, surely verses four to seven, are among the most wonderful verses in the entire Bible. Look down. Let's read them again. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What precious, precious words. If you are a Christian today, then you were dead. Your soul was dead. It was beyond all hope. But if you are a Christian today, then you are dead no longer. We have been made alive. Paul writes, not brought back from the precipice, brought back from the brink of death, resuscitated, given a stern talking to, kept going for a few weeks, a few months longer. No, made alive. And not just made alive, verse five, but verse six, we've been raised up and we've been seated in the heavenly realms. If you were to um, draw a diagram of this passage, just imagine the exponential curve uh, going right from the grave to the throne room of God. How has this happened? Look again at those three verbs in verses 5 and 6, made alive, raised, seated. God made us alive with Christ. God raised us up with Christ. He seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So easily read read those verses and miss that, couldn't you? But every time we're reminded there's no miracle drug here. No elixir of eternal life. No releasing that the power of who you really are inside. No. There's one way that dead souls can be made alive. And that is with Jesus. The redemption that's offered to us through his blood. We saw back in chapter 1, verse 7. It is only through Jesus' death on the cross that the ransom price for our dead souls has been paid. It is only through Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' ascension into heaven, the space that has been allocated to Jesus in the heavenly seating plan, showing God the Father's acceptance of the ransom payment Jesus offered up for us. It is only because of all those things that our dead souls have been, that our dead souls could have been, made alive. Jesus is not one path among many, one of the men, many tracks up the mountain to nirvana. He's the only path up the mountain. And salvation, b- b- being reborn, being made alive, it's, it's not just an abstract thing, it's something that comes to us remotely as we sign on the dotted line, a sort, a sort of process. It's personal. It comes through a person, It comes in, with, and through Jesus. We're not made alive on our own, raised on our own, seated on our own, on our own little throne, looking out of our own little kingdom. It is all with Jesus, in Jesus, through Jesus. Made alive with him, raised with him, and now seated with him. And of course, the um, the process is not yet complete. Romans 8, verse 23, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. The process is not yet complete. We long for our weak bodies to be made alive, raised and seated with Christ. But as we wait, we rejoice that our souls have already been made alive, raised, seated with Christ. We have already been adopted as sons, as we saw in chapter one, verse five, even as we wait to be adopted as sons, as we see in Romans eight, verse 23, we already sit at God's side in heaven because Jesus already sits there and he's taken us with him. And why did all this occur? Again, I think you could miss it in these familiar verses but they're they're peppered with phrases explaining why. Verse 4, because of his great love for us. Verse 4 again, God who is rich in mercy. Verse 5, it is by grace you've been saved. And again, verse 8. Verse 7, his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God did it because he loves us, because he wanted to be kind to us. Because he wanted to show us his mercy and his grace. He didn't have to make us alive with Christ. He wasn't under some sort of obligation. He wanted to. These verses drip, they ooze with descriptions of how God feels about us, as well as what he's done for us. And he is filled with love for us. We were dead, brothers and sisters but we have been made alive. If you are a Christian this morning, you are not what you once were. This great, this definitive, this life-changing before and after transformation has already occurred in you. You have not since been, you never could be, the same as what you were before. The little you may have in common with who you were before you knew Jesus is nothing compared to the extraordinary change God has worked in you. So rejoice. It makes me think of when you've um, spent the best part of bed uh, of a week in bed with the flu, and then suddenly one day you just feel better. And you feel like you're on top of the world. You feel like a new person. You feel amazing. You wish you could feel like that every day. We were dead, but we've been made alive. So Rejoice. And that doesn't mean that we'll always be on spiritual cloud nine, spending our days in a haze of holy happiness. Because Romans 8, verse 23, we groan as we rejoice. Being sinful people, living in a sinful world, takes its toll on us. And some days, some seasons, that contain more groaning and others more joy. But even in the darkest valley, even when you can't really feel the joy, Don't forget it entirely. Hold on to it. For however tough that season may be, you have still been made alive with Christ. As long as he is seated at his Father's side in the heavenly realms, so are you. So rejoice. So we've seen the before. Realize that you are dead without Jesus. The after, rejoice that you've been made alive with Jesus. And verse 7 would have been a great place for Paul to wrap up with the incomparable riches of God's grace in verse 7 ringing in our ears. He's not quite finished. And so we move on to our final point. The so what now? Walk in the good works Jesus has planned for you. Verses 8 to 10. Walk in the good works Jesus has planned for you. And Paul picks up in verse 8 an almost throwaway line from the end of verse 5, and he expands on it. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Let's be very clear here. Paul says, this new life is nothing like getting a promotion at work. It doesn't bear the slightest likeness to bagging a trophy, to winning the cup, It in no way resembles earning your free 10th coffee loyalty card stamp. This new life has nothing to do with anything that you have done. You can't earn your place in heaven. You can't work your way there by knowing your Bible well, by praying enough, by living a good enough life. For who, having died, could make themselves alive again? And again, Paul stacks up phrase after phrase in verses 8 and 9 to make it clear that being made alive with Christ has nothing to do with anything that we have done. It's by grace through faith. Faith here simply means accepting the gift. It's not some sort of act of belief that we notch up in our favour. Second, it's not from yourselves. Third, it's the gift of God. Fourth, it's not by works. Fifth, no one can boast. And hopefully we're starting to get the picture. We don't present our spiritual CVs to God and then he hands over the blessing of being made alive. This new life has nothing to do with anything that we have done. And yet there are works in this passage. In the middle of verse 10, let me read it again. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. But these works are very different from any works we might do, thinking that they're somehow earning God's pleasure, impressing him with our morality, our spirituality, our service. No, we have already been made alive. It's a done deal. There's no work that we could do that would have any impact on that. Yet there are works for us to do here. For we are now new creations, New people. We're God's handiwork in verse 10. God's masterpieces, the NLT translation puts it. We are whole new beings. And we've been created with a purpose, for a purpose. God has a whole new life planned for us. A life based not around pleasing him, impressing him, appeasing him, keeping him on one side, like so many of our earthly relationships, No, a life of enjoying him and doing the good things he's planned for us to do. Good things that will bless us, that will serve others, and that will honour him. Good works that that won't further guarantee a spot in heaven for us, as if our spot in heaven could be any less guaranteed than it already is, with Christ sat at his Father's right-hand side and us there with him. But good works that we've been created to do and enjoy as we serve the one, he saved us. And I can't help reading this verse and thinking that it feels quite practical. Dare I say, even quite, quite down to earth. And we, I know I, have all sorts of great aims for our lives as Christians. We want to be prayer warriors. We want to know our Bibles inside out. We want to grow in godliness. We want to start and lead exciting new ministries, bring people to Christ, take the gospel to the streets and the nations. And those are all wonderful, good, biblical aims. But I read this verse, and I just can't help wondering if Paul has something a little humbler in mind here. God hasn't only prepared in advance the big, clear, high-profile, exciting good works that some of his people will do. I think he's just as much prepared than making cups of tea. The photocopying service sheets, the actually remembering to pray for someone, kind of good works. And I wonder how it might change how we feel as we serve, how we feel as we hoover corridors, pull up weeds, write text for a website page, cut out pictures for a children's craft, send an email or a message, or wash up after a meeting, or take a meal or a card to someone's house, or chat to someone after the service that we find quite hard work. I wonder how it might change how we feel if we remember in those moments that we're doing good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. We're not simply doing a job that no one else volunteered to do. This great, this definitive, this life-changing before and after transformation comes with a wonderful so what now. It comes with a call to live a different life, Not a life of walking in sin, but of walking in the good works God has prepared for us to do. Not to earn his favour, not to impress him, not to please him or appease him. But because of his great love for us, because he gave up his life and he's made us alive.